we are we're the first people at the top of the river so to speak and so we have to let a certain amount of water flow out of our state and so if we're not meeting those criteria we're not meeting that we get in trouble as a state and so the state has vested interest in supplying all this water downstream and so if there's a firm that can say hey colorado we'll give you x amount of water then they could feasibly get a lot of money from colorado Welcome to The Sound of Water, where we talk about everything water. My name is Alyssa Marcy. And I'm Mariana Botão. Today is July 1st, and our very first episode. The Sound of Water is a podcast that explores the Earth's most precious resource, water, and the many ways it intersects with our lives. We need and use water every day, but we often don't think about it. Water is such a complex part of our society. It differs so much from one place to the other, from one person to the other, that we decided this is something that we need to talk about. Here we are, talking to people from all backgrounds about water. Today on our show, we are going to talk about what happens when there isn't enough water to go around. The Colorado River provides water to farming communities in multiple states through its extensive irrigation systems. The river basin itself reaches beyond Colorado's borders to Utah, Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, and even parts of California. And joining us to talk about this is Colorado resident James Warren. Hi, James. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Sorry, I tried, I almost introduced myself like twice there. So I think <laughs> you'll hear my audio interrupting you. You can just mute me on that part. Yeah, no problem. We can do that. So I want to start off by learning a little more about you. So maybe you can tell us where you're from originally and what you're doing now. Yeah, I get Okay, so originally, uh, the DC area is where I spent time growing up. Um, when I was in high school, my family moved to Phoenix, Arizona, because my dad does housing. And the housing market crash caused us to move. Uh, I lived in California, and I'm now in Colorado. So I've spent a lot of time in the West. Uh, about a decade in the West now, a little over. Um, and I don't remember your second question. What I'm doing? What are you doing? Yeah. What, what am I doing? I'm, uh, I'm working out here in Denver, Colorado. I'm studying during the school year, uh, getting my Master's of Public Administration at Cornell in the Institute for Public Affairs and uh, studying policy. Yeah, I see you repping your Cornell gear right now. Yeah, exactly. And here we have... Cornell too. <laughs> I don't know anything Cornell. I don't like repping brands. I'm not about that. No, right. No. Very popular. I am sponsored by Smart Water, though. So be sure to buy yourself a liter or two next time you're at the grocery. <laughs> Absolutely. So, James, what are your plans for the future once you finish your master's? Yeah, once I finish my master's, I want to come back out here to Colorado. Uh, I'd love to work in 
in policy out here in one form or another that's kind of not truly defined yet for me. But it's just a, a really great place to live. A lot of awesome opportunities. Uh, a lot of great people out here. And um, it's the place I call home. So it's definitely where I want to spend time after graduation. That sounds awesome. I wish you good luck on your endeavors. Thank you. So moving on to our topic of interest here, which is water. So what would you say are your fondest memories of water in a community that you have lived in? Well, I guess this is a little, a little bit of a strange answer. But when I was in high school, we, when we moved to Phoenix, in Phoenix, many, many houses have pools. Uh, less just for recreation and more because you just need to cool off. It's 120 freaking degrees for weeks straight. And so my brother and I found this old plastic box that was at the house. And we had never had a pool before. And so we put it in the pool and we're pretending to be pirates. This would be cute if I had been like seven, but I was like <laughs> 15. So, but it's still such a fond memory in my brain of me and him. You know, we would tell pirate stories as we sailed in this plastic box. Uh, again, something very cute for a young person to do. Not cute for a high schooler to do. Very creepy for a high schooler to do. I can envision it, yeah. Sounds fun though. Yeah, I still do it today. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Um, so the theme today is water rights and agriculture. So we will be discussing an article called Western Colorado Water Purchases Stir Up Worries About the Future of Farming. And this is written by Heather Sackett and Luke Runyon published in Arizona Public Media. So James, as uh, someone who lives in Denver and expects to return to Colorado, how common is talk of water scarcity? Yeah, it's interesting. It goes sort of in and out. Um, I think for a lot of city residents, it's a lot less clear of a connection between our water consumption and sort of what's allowed almost. Uh, for instance, I can't water my lawn in Denver after, I think it's 9 a.m. here. Uh, but one, probably most people don't know that. And two, if you violate that law, chances are the police aren't going to come busting down your door. If you live in the more rural parts of the state, um, whether that be in the south or on the western slope, you're definitely going to face a lot more scrutiny in terms of your water consumption. Um, and as you mentioned, the, the climate change deal, we, we just had a lot less precipitation in face of a growing population, growing desire for meat in our country. Uh, and all of these things make water a more and more precious resource out there. So um, I remember, so actually in 2016, uh, Denver, or Colorado passed a law that allowed residents to collect up to 110 gallons of water on their property from like rain. Uh, mm -hmm. And prior to that, you weren't allowed. And it got a lot of people in a fit because, you know, like, who are you to tell me I can't get the rain from my roof? But, uh, you know, we have this Colorado River Compact that, that addresses, like that includes, I think, seven different states. And, uh, it really, it really shapes a lot of water policy in Colorado. <laughs> no, absolutely. And, and then, I mean, 
scaling up on what you have said about the complexity of the case, uh, I think this article presents a lot of the complexity about the current situation surrounding the Colorado River. Due to water shortages and food supply monopolies, many farmers are selling their land. So this article mentions a new phenomenon taking place in these communities depending upon this water source. A New York hedge fund called Water Asset Management, or WEM, that is buying up parcels of, of former farming land. So James, why might a hedge fund be interested in buying this land? The way water rights on property work in Colorado, you have sort of different categories of water rights. I, as an individual on my property, like I said, I'm allowed to collect 110 gallons of water, right? So that's like a very specific property right that residents have. Um, but also there's uh, water used for irrigation in farms that uh, it's a whole separate bucket of water rights that you can, uh, that you purchase when you purchase a piece of land. And in order to maintain those rights, at least right now, that water needs to be used for agricultural purposes. And so while this water asset management fund is, is still leasing back land to farmers uh, for agricultural use, the, your question definitely rings true. Like, well, well why, why would a, why would a hedge fund from New York be interested in, in agricultural land in Colorado, especially if they're just going to lease it back to farmers? That doesn't make sense. It, or at least there are more productive investments if you're a hedge fund. Uh, but the thinking is that uh, as water becomes more scarce or more in demand, but my impression is that that water can be sold back to the state in a way. The state has certain obligations that it needs to meet. Uh, we are, we're the first people at the top of the river, so to speak, we have to let a certain amount of water flow out of our state. And so if we're not meeting those criteria, if we're not meeting that, we get in trouble as a state. And so the state has vested interest in supplying all this water downstream. And so if there's a firm that can say, hey, Colorado, we'll give you X amount of water, then they could feasibly get a lot of money from Colorado. Colorado would have a lot of interest in getting that water uh, and sending it downstream or holding it in a reservoir and sending it down as appropriate. I, I did a little bit of research. I don't think I saw anywhere that that is water asset management's plan, um, but that strikes me as the likely reason that a hedge fund would want to be invested in water in a state where water is such a controlled resource. all of this investment activity for the Colorado government to tighten up anti-water speculation law. So I myself had to look up what this actually is. Um, but in short, Colorado law states three legal truths. One, that all water in Colorado belongs to the public. Two, that water use rights may be obtained if use meets the criteria of other applicable laws. And three, water use rights become perfected property rights when the water is placed under beneficial use. So the third point um, that is, is called into question when entities like WAM purchase these lands. Farmers obtain water rights, like you said earlier, in order to use them to produce food. That is the so-called beneficial use. So what companies are doing is not just purchasing land, but purchasing water rights and investing in the future potential value of water. 
Um, in fact, WAM is the largest landowner in the Grand Valley Water Users Association. Why might this be a particular problem, James? Yeah, uh, so the farming makes up a large part of our economy and an even larger part of our communities uh, in Colorado. There are a few industries that kind of keep most of this state running and farming is right up there. If you see an investment fund coming in that doesn't necessarily have those same community values, in this case, farming, there is, it's plausible to believe that that company is going to uh, dissolve those communities. And I, I think that's sort of what the beneficial use clause is and the um, speculation is seeking to prevent, right? From some free market perspective, you know, like fine, if the market decides that that's what the water's worth, then, then great. But, but we are really talking about a rich culture on the Western Slope, particularly, and having, having, using water for speculation rather than for propping up your community um, dissolves that. And, and that, that is problematic. So a lot, of what, a lot of what water asset management does is it invests in, in more efficient irrigation methods uh, and then leases the property back as agricultural. That, insofar as it stays like that, is, is fine, you know? And, and I think as an environmentalist, I want to be sensitive to market ways to save water, to reduce carbon, whatever it is. Uh, and in this case, if they are able to keep farmers farming, use less water, and then also make a buck on the side, uh, I'm okay with that. It's just worrying because of the potential for abuse. And I think, I think that's where a lot of the people on the Western Slope, uh, a lot of people in our legislature, and, and even me a little bit, uh, get a little concerned. Yeah, definitely. Yes, I agree with Aich. And uh, moving on here to uh, what you have mentioned regarding improving communities, right? Uh, there is something that I think is interesting about this article is the social ramification of, ramifications of selling off land to whim. This article even mentions that a rancher built an online wall of shame of those who sold their land. And this is sort of highlights a larger problem, and that is the impact of investments can change livelihoods. So how do you think this may continue to affect farmers in the area? Do you think there is an information or communication gap at work in this conflict? Yes. Um, and, and just to tie it to a little bit more of an urban context for maybe some folks who are less connected to, uh, to farming. And, and frankly, even for me, this helps me make sense of it. In Denver, we have, a, we have a, a, something of a problem where developers will approach uh, landlords and offer cash for their, for their property, right? And if you do that to a whole block of people, a lot of people will take that. You know, what, what, how often are you able to get $300,000 in, in straight cash? And they're offering oftentimes above market value, it's really tempting. It's really tempting for a lot of property owners who have been here 30 years and aren't, you know, necessarily like, oh, this is where I want to be forever. And, and if you're a farmer and, you know, hard knocks are coming, man, somebody's coming with, with a check offering you cash for your property. That's, that's very, very tempting. Again, from a market perspective, it's just going to, it, the, the market decides what the market decides, right? But at the same time, uh, we're talking about here in Denver, 
we're talking about the uh, changing communities overnight. You know, um, we have places in, in Denver where you have like very square gray modern buildings with coffee shops and breweries on one side of the street. And on the other side of the street, you have people lining up for meals at church because we've seen the traditional or the, the, the long-term residents of one place be moved out. Um, here it's because a lot of those people who sell their property are landlords and not, you know, property owners. Um, but there, it is very threatening, I think, to see a hedge fund come into a rural farming community. Someone in New York who makes a lot of money in a suit in an air-conditioned office all day does not have the same values and does not want the same things for our towns as people living in those communities. <laughs> while, while on one level, it's like, okay, well, you're, you're aiming the shame at the wrong people. You're just looking at people who are taking a great offer of cash. Um, I, I understand where that's coming from in the community because it's very, very threatening. And I think that there's, yeah, there's an intrinsic connection to land that our farmers have. Um, and if your land is owned by a hedge fund, it, it's threatening. go back to um, something that you were mentioning earlier, James, which is the Colorado River Compact. So the article mentions um, a possible water conservation program called demand management. And the idea here is that the farmers in the Grand Valley region would use less water intensive techniques through fallowing or WAM funded technology, and then be compensated for their reductions in water use. The saved water will be sent to a pool and used to meet the requirements of this Colorado River Compact, which was you know, a 1922 agreement between states in the upper basins to assure a water supply to those in the lower basins. And I think this is where we really see the clear-cut relationship between water conservation and agriculture. Um, but what are some obstacles and opportunities that you might think of when trying to establish a new program like this? You know, how do we know that farmers and WAM investors can both benefit? Yeah, so, okay few different kind of ideas going around there. I think one thing that is a challenge about that is that I, I think it's going to be more difficult to convince capital to finance than simply buy. Financing uh, farming infrastructure upgrades, it, it may just appear as a riskier as a riskier proposition if you don't own the property. And I, I think this is a, a good case for something like the nascent Colorado Green Bank to uh, make an entry. They're, they're not called the Green Bank. Uh, I don't remember what they're called. I talked to the, the CEO a while about it, but uh, he was, you know, he's sort of starting up, looking for opportunities to invest and whatnot. And, and this seems like a, a great opportunity for someone whose bottom line isn't purely money to come in. Um, because yeah, again, just there are more lucrative things you could be doing than investing in a farmer's land and then just trusting that they're going to, you know, produce more water over time. Um, I think the opportunities are huge. I think that if we can figure out a financing mechanism for, uh, more fuel efficient irrigation techniques that we, we have this great opportunity to one, improve farmer's land 
with hopefully no cost or little cost to the farmer, something that is from a farmer's perspective, fiscally viable, um, right? Wh whatever that means. And I, again, I think this is a great opportunity for like a green bank to come in with a, a longer term financing scheme um, to help recoup the costs uh, and reduce the burden on the farmers. And, you know, farmers aren't out here trying to waste water. If, if they can do more with less water, that's going to be great. And I think they jump at the opportunity. That would also help the state, of course. Many of us, you know, are aware agriculture is the largest use of water. Uh, I, think it, I think it does provide some really excellent opportunities, not only for the state, but also for the farmers themselves. I think the opportunity is just what, what is the financing mechanism going to be? Um, because if we keep it private, I just wouldn't necessarily think that a lot of private money is going to jump at the opportunity when it could be spent elsewhere. So, so James, towards the end of the article, Andy Mueller, uh, the manager of the Colorado Water Conservation District, mentions that this phenomenon of purchasing irrigated land will lead to a separation of water from land and that this is problematic. So even though WEM has to, has to purchase land in the Grand Valley Water Users Association, this is not the case under the Grand Valley Irrigation Canal Company. In this region of irrigated land, water shares can be traded. Why do you think Mueller is worried about the separation of water and land? Um, well, I think from a, from a practical standpoint, because it, it's a very possible future, all you need to do is make the argument to a group of legislators in the midst of a drought that this is a, an effective law to pass in order to stay compliant with the compact and boom, it's going to be done. Maybe, maybe, that's, maybe that's a little too cynical of me, but it, it seems very possible that that is an outcome um, in the future. And, and droughts are going to become more common. We know they are people's demands are going to become more robust here, here in Denver, here in Colorado for, for meat, for other foods. And um, as those strains grow, are we really going to be, stay attached to this idea that water and land are inseparable? I don't think so. And then from there, winning that back is much more difficult. So, so I think, I think from a practical standpoint, that is why he's worried from a, from a kind of, philosophical level I, I think that there's there's good reason to think that like no like the water rights for this property were intended the the right is given to you because the whole idea of this property is that you're going to use it you're going to use the water and improve the property and make something for your community and for your state and from a philosophical level divorcing those things betrays that ideal. And so I can understand why you'd be troubled, not only practically, but also from an idealistic point of view too. Yeah, and I, and I share some of those worries. I, I don't know if I'm as skeptical, like if there are ways we can utilize big money from out of state to improve our farming practices here uh, without destroying communities, let's hear them. I'm all about it. But um, I can understand how how you wouldn't be how you'd be a little more skeptical, um, uh, and and just foresee a future where those where those things are centered. 
Uh, one of the current conservation programs pay farmers $200 for an acre foot of water. In your opinion, how do you, th how do you actually determine its costs? Do you think it's problematic to put a price on water? Oh, good question. Um, I would say the determining the actual price is something that I would let, you know, some, some very smart, you know, economists and, and, you know, scientists do. There, there's an answer out there. How much do we value an acre of water? There's an answer to that question. And it'll differ person to person, but there's also an average answer. And um, that data might be useful to us, but I think your second question gets at the heart of why this is even being asked in the first place. Can we put a price on water? We are going to have to deal with that question more and more. We, you know, humans over the past few hundred years have, and, and particularly European men ever industrializing their world and, and determining that that is the best way forward, have have really sent us down a path where our aquifers are being drained, our our air is getting drier in places where it's dry and wetter in places where it's wet, and we're going to have more droughts, we're going to have more, we're just going to have more climate related events. And so putting a price on water is going to become more and more salient of a question. And the reason it worries at least me is because it inevitably says, well, what if you can't pay for water? And that's really scary, not just for our farmers, but we're also talking about uh, our citizens who are the least served by our government and by our communities right now, who find themselves unable to pay for anything. Uh, do we really say that they, they can't get water? That's a scary thought. Um, it seems to me that the real alternative to having to be confronted with that very scary question um, and those very uncomfortable futures is to, uh, is to invest on a large scale right now. Um, whether that comes from the green bank, a green bank or, or some other financier or whatever, to improve agricultural land, whether it means we reduce our water consumption here in the city or uh, by changing our diets to a more plant-based diet away from an animal agriculture-based diet, that, that's another problem, you know, uh, particularly here in the United States, um, but all around the world, diets are, are becoming more meat reliant than less. And uh, we know that meat is a huge suck on our, on our water supplies. And so to me, the, the solution is like nip it in the bud now. Whether or not uh, that will be the solution that comes to pass, uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I have my doubts, um, but I'm sure it's all going to fight to make that the solution that does come to pass. And um, you know, I trust y'all will too. So, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, James, for being here. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This was like a really fun conversation to have. I hadn't read this article before, so uh, yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you, James. This wraps up this episode of The Sound of Water. We want to thank the New York State Water Resources Institute for sponsoring this podcast. And Bobby Mathis for writing, performing, and recording our music. I'm Melissa Marcy. And I'm Mariana Botel. See, See you next time. time.